0: Case file number 4.10, Crypto Wars. The NSA strikes back. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker.
1: So Ymir, remember last episode we were talking about DES and the whole dispute about the fifty-six bit key length. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When do you think, like it was by the consensus of everyone, just known to be completely busted?
0: When was it known to be busted, or when were they like, "Hey, we probably should change this"?
1: Well, turns out those dates aren't
0: that far apart. <laughs> oh really? Oh, okay. I'm going to spitball and throw my dart at like 2010s.
1: No, it was actually 1999. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the thing about that was that Jim Fraser of the NSA, when they were doing all of this stuff in 1977, estimated that the 56-bit key, key length would be good until 1990. Okay. He even said, but then you've got to just certify it in 1990 because in 1991, it's going to be attackable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the reason why we're going to talk about like how DES was finally put into its grave is because it was still in use in 1990. It was still in use in 1995. It was still in use for a little bit after that. In fact, 1997, the company RSA Security, and we'll talk a little bit about them in a bit, set up a set of like X Prize type crypto analysis contests called the DES challenges.
2: Mm, Okay.
1: So breaking DES under the terms of their challenge would have a $10,000 prize in 1997 money. And you'll recall that, the Diffie-Hellman analysis thing said in their public comment paper in 1977, that it could be broken by a $20 million computer then at an estimated per key cost of about $10,000 per key under their set of assumptions of the number of messages that would be the scale of, of operation. And that $20 million is would be about $95 million in today's money. Okay. And... The NSA said that their numbers were completely bonkers, and Diffie and Hellman, Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman said that the NSA's assumptions were completely off base too. <laughs> Based on this analysis, I think that they were both right that both of them were wrong. <laughs> um, which is actually an interesting thing to think about, how uh, confident you can be about the predictability of when you think an algorithm is going to be broken.
0: Mm, right.
1: Anyway, so back to the, uh, the 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 DES challenges. The first challenge was issued in '97. It was won by a project called DESChal, which was led by uh, Rock uh, Verser, and they used a application that ran in the background on a bunch of users' PCs, and would get you know key space. We've talked a little bit about this before. They'd get a set of keys to try against. So. I should probably back up a second, tell you how these challenges worked. There was an encrypted ciphertext message and you were supposed to find the key. Okay, okay. So what Deschow did, and this is actually very similar to how distributed.net worked, which ends up coming up real soon now, uh, is that you'd have the ciphertext, you can copy the ciphertext as many times as you want, who cares? Um, So what you basically do is you have a database of all the possible keys.
2: Mm, Okay.
1: Well, you have blocks of keys. You say from this hexadecimal number to this hexadecimal number because it's all bits anyway, right? Right, yeah. So you don't have to have a database that just stores them all. And you say, okay, this computer over here running the client in the background will grab this chunk of key from this starting point to this ending point incrementally. Mm -hmm, And then you do that a whole bunch of times and you will eventually break the key, you'll go through the entire key space. But this is one of those operations like we talked about before, where your computer and my computer who are both working using the same client and busting the same key space don't have to talk to one another because the central database tells us which key space we're working on. And so nobody's working on the same key space.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, this is the whole thing about interconnects not being important for this kind of computation and being a lot more important for other kinds of computation. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So they took advantage of this and did this distributed computing uh, and they ended up cracking it, you know, I don't have the how long it took them to crack it I have the next two how long it took. Uh, but they won the first challenge by just running the database system and writing the APP and not running any of their own local cracking. Mm, okay, well. They don't specifically say, but they didn't like invest in money for hardware specifically to do the cracking. They probably right, had yeah. it running on some of their local systems because why not?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: The next challenge was in 1998 on the 13th of, of January, and it was won by a system called Deep Crack. And Deep Crack was a cooperative project between cryptography research, uh, advanced wireless technologies and the electronic frontier foundation oh really okay yeah the system was designed by um paul cocker who was pr- president of cryptography research and it consisted of 1856 custom chips that mm-hmm. were asics um that were on 29 boards that were all put together and connected to a big sun computer sun 4470 which is mm-hmm. not quite a supercomputer but awful darn close. Okay. This is a, a big box that was kind of competitive to some mainframe type tasks. Okay. But this is, you know, this is the whole mini computer versus computer, meaning mainframe computer type things. This was right in that era of what do we use a mainframe for and what do we use for slightly smaller tasks?
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So with that system, they broke the message in 56 hours of work. Mm, okay. okay. Now the contest ran for 40 days. So I don't know that they got it, like that everything worked perfectly the first try or anything, but it was 56 hours of computation that, that cracked it.
2: Mm, okay.
1: And then the third DES challenge, Deepcrack partnered with distributed.net, which came in a relatively close, like I think second, second or third to Deepcrack. And they together, worked on the third DES challenge, the third and final DES challenge, which was started on January 19th, 1999. Mm, Okay. The rules for this one were, if you broke it in 24 hours or less, you got a $10,000 prize. And then it went down from there. But if you couldn't do it any faster than that 56 hour mark from the previous one. Right. You got nothing. Then nobody got any money. They broke it in 22 hours and 15 minutes.
0: Oh, shit, Damn. Nice. (laughs)
1: in 1999 with a computer that cost about a quarter million dollars and the distributed.net network.
2: Mm -hmm, Right.
1: Now, one of the things I think is very interesting about the Deschal distributed.net. And like we talked about uh, in the last episode, the SETI um, distribution system. This, I think inculcated in a larger set of people, the idea uh, that not all computers work full-time all the time.
2: Mm, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: That most computers don't, and that thought is what led to virtual machines vmware type systems mm-hmm. vm kvm those kind of <laughs> things, which then led to the whole idea behind the economy of scale that you could get with the cloud
0: yeah yeah, that makes sense like it, it's funny because that led to uh you know virtual machines yeah I still have clients that will have me spin up thirty virtual machines where ninety percent of them are idle ninety percent of the time and it's like you're kind of defeating the whole purpose here like
1: well i mean if your vm host has been provisioned with that in mind then you're fine
0: yeah yeah like like yeah they're <laughs> always provisioned with that but i'm like yeah like it, it could be done so much better
1: yeah well you have the operating system overhead part that um mm-hmm. especially with windows boxes that ends up being redundant uh if you don't if you're not being efficient about the way that your, your jobs and stuff are running. But that's, yeah. <laughs> frankly, we have enough to cover without talking too much about that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff for us to do other episodes. I've been listening to a couple of episodes recently, and it's like, and the number of times we're like, we should do an episode on that.
0: Right, yeah, yeah.
1: And I think we're batting about 500 in the times that we've actually gone back and done another episode on it, on something.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so in 1999, Des was pretty busted. But here's the thing. DES was originally authorized for use in 1977 like we previously discussed. It was reaffirmed in 1988, 1993, and then the October after the 1999 DES challenge, it was also part of the allowed algorithms for unclassified uh, for use on unclassified data by FIPS 40-46-3. Uh, really? Yeah. Now, granted that document recommended use of triple DES, Mm -hmm. but DES was still allowable. And Mm. there's some silly stuff about triple DES. And I'll just very quickly go over that. There's three modes of operation for triple DES. The first one was you have three independent keys, all 56 bit, and you just go and encrypt them subsequently with each of the three keys.
0: Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: There's a second mode where you use two keys: one key, then the second key, and then the first key again, which is has a shorter key length and but is more resistant than just using two.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: But there was a third mode of operation, which is really wacky, where you use the f- one key three times.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: Now here's the thing about that: if you use one key twice, that first key twice you just end up with the plain text again. right? So triple DES with the third mode of operation where you use one key three times is cryptographically equivalent to, in fact, identically equivalent to using just regular DES. Yeah, yeah. Now, the reason that the, that, that was part of the spec of, of possible operations is for backwards compatibility with DES-only systems. <laughs> but this, again, shows a problem that we see, that we've seen keep coming up in a lot of things that we've talked about which is what i keep calling the universal adoption problem Mm
2: -hmm. yeah
1: everybody already started using des it was already in all kinds of software it was all in all kinds of hardware that wasn't easy to replace right yeah so now what do you do and they were already 10 years after the uh, over the clock and they proved that somebody with some resources but not Anywhere close to nation state level resources could break DES if they put their mind to it. Mostly,
0: I'm curious how many or how often it was used, uh, the, the triple DES one key uh, variation to basically get that check mark during an audit and be like, uh, like we, 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 we use triple DES now.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't think that that would be a ton because you'd have to go through some extra trouble to make that happen. Mm. Whereas if you're just switching out kind of, without getting clever about it, you'd end up using one of the other two modes of operation. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you would have to have known that's what you did if you were doing that. That wouldn't be a thing that, that happened unless you were really trying and you knew you had to solve that. I have a box, I, or I have an endpoint that only uses single des.
0: Yeah, that's my thought is if you still had a bunch of endpoints that use all des.
1: Yeah. But in that you know, case, that's going to come up in the audit.
0: <laughs> it, it might not. <laughs> or <Like> sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes they'll just ask, you know, what algorithm are you using? And you can be like, mm-hmm. oh, no, triple DES. And then, like, yeah, I've, I've had auditors that don't care about the endpoints of the system and what they're capable of doing. They just care what you're using.
1: Yeah. So the effort to replace DES was actually started in 97. That effort was for the Advanced Encryption Standard AES which we're not gonna go a ton over. The adoption process is actually kind of interesting and probably worth an episode on its own. But uh, AES was formally adopted in 2002. Yeah. So triple DES's time in the sun actually wasn't all that long
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. in terms of it being the best algorithm that was for federal information processing. A lot of triple DES algorithms still existed in SSL world for a long time. Up tell everybody went over to TLS 1.2. Mm, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, and in fact, I think there are still some triple DES algorithms that are legal that are legal implementation for that. Mm. The last time I wrote an OpenSSL uh, cipher string, I, I explicitly told it not to do triple DES. <laughs> so now the last point on the whole DES story was in 2009, a set of German and Czech researchers made a system more or less based on the deep crack architecture only they used fpgas instead of asics which means that they didn't have to produce the chips and fpga a field programmable gate array can be programmed on the fly so hmm. they okay. they made the chip by programming the chip instead of burning the chip right yeah so a lot more code than burning a chip like uh if you remember the movie real genius they had to uh burn a chip for the b1 bomber for the laser to be targeted
0: i don't think i ever saw that <gasps> <laughs> i
1: gotta
0: look it up
1: yeah well we were talking about about doing kind of our one-year anniversary episodes of a watch of of hackers maybe the two-year anniversary anniversary will be uh watching real genius
0: oh damn it, had kill in it? okay oh
1: yeah it's a great movie um anyway So in 2009, they they built a system based on deep crack called Copacabana, because hackers are hilarious. And they built it to get similar levels of performance for a price at that point in 2009 of about $10,000 worth of hardware. So we went from $10,000 a key to $10,000 for a machine that would break it in a day. (laughs) But that was 10 years after Everybody was like, no, nah, no, nah, DES is pretty much dead. <laughs>
0: yeah, like it's, it's broken. No more use.
1: So that was the death of DES. Now we move on to so DES is the symmetric algorithm, and the hash algorithms are, are pretty much tied into the symmetric algorithms. The next big piece of modern cryptography was asymmetric cryptography. Now, this started with one problem that Whitfield Diffie was pretty much obsessed with back in, in the mid seventies, which is how to exchange keys securely without having another channel of communication. Mm-hmm. Cause even at the time we knew that one time pads worked, that if you and I had an identical string of random characters, I could write a message that just did a transposition between that seed character in the first position in the first position of my of my message and go on this is how a one-time pad works so the length of the key is the length of the message and it works because you have an identical key on your end
2: and because right. there's yeah.
1: no repetition and everything's random it can't be broken in fact the russians did run into a problem with this at one point because i think we did discuss this in a previous episode where they reused some keys
2: Mm-hmm. yeah they couldn't generate
1: them, yeah. them fast enough, so they reused keys and were able to yeah, re- yeah. to break them. but fundamentally, it's sound, but the problem with it this is a great example of of this problem. you have to pre-share those keys beforehand, which is why the Russians ran into this problem because they didn't ha- they couldn't pre-share those keys in sufficient volume, yeah, yeah, so what Phil Diffie was trying to figure out a way where you and I can exchange key information so we can have secure communications over the same channel that we're going to have the secure communications. Mm-hmm. And in 1976, he came up with a revolutionary idea that allowed for this. And what it does is, is you and I share a prime number and it's primitive root. And don't ask me what a primitive root is. Frankly, this is mathematics that's beyond me at this point. I um, you assume
0: it's just a root that kind of dwells in uh, caves.
1: Yes. Um, and basically I pick a number and you pick a number and we do some operation where our number is given as the exponent of the primitive root. And um, then we take the modulus of that and there's some processing. You can look it up if you're interested in the math. But what it means is because I know my number and the prime and the primitive root and you know your number on the prime and the primitive root, you can discover my number without disclosing it because you know your number, but whoever's listening in between doesn't.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
1: Now he worked with Martin Hellman, who he learned from when he was in school, and they produced a paper called New Directions in Cryptography, as well as the basis of the original Diffie- Hellman key exchange. Now, this was a pretty big deal. It was really new in the in the world of cryptography, or at least public space crypto researchers. so A guy named Ron Runvest, who was uh, working at MIT at the time, read the paper, got interested in the problem of asymmetric cryptography, because the idea of asymmetric cryptography, where you have a public and a private key, so the key that is used to generate the the encrypted message is not the same key as used to decrypt it, had been theorized by new directions of cryptography. But they didn't have an algorithm. It hadn't been solved at that point, just the key exchange mechanism. So he got interested in this problem and he was at MIT and somebody he'd been spending a lot of time with, hanging out with a lot, was a guy named Adi Shamar, who who, he was Israeli, but at MIT. And they also were friends with another guy, a mathematician named um, Leonard uh, uh, Edelman. And from what I read, Edelman wasn't like super interested in the problem, but he was (laughs) such good friends with Ron and (laughs) Adi. He just kind of went along for the ride. So they were discussing a bunch of different ideas and it would happen that like one or two of them would have an idea. And the third one would always be like, Oh no, I have a way of attacking that. It would be trivial if I took this approach and right. they just kept going round and round and round on it. And they were actually getting pretty frustrated at the, at the problem. And um, on Passover in 1977, Ron uh, Rivest uh, got into the Manischewitz and he was, he, they don't say he was like off his feet drunk, but he was he by all reports was drinking a fair bit that night. <laughs> and like when he got home after midnight, he just couldn't sleep, so he was, was kind of flipping through a math textbook, thinking through the problem of problems that were, that were really hard in one direction but easy in another.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he came up with the idea having to do with prime factoring. And I, again, I don't get the math on all of this i kind of died in the middle of, of calc two calc three but um he talked to shamar about adi, with adi Shemar about it and they created an implementation which they had edelman test and edelman was kind of the as the mathematician kind of the best guy for testing the algorithms and they figured out that they had a winner and in august 1977 they published a detailed description of the algorithm in Scientific America, Mathematical Games column.
2: Mm, okay.
1: And they filed the patent in December of that year, um, which was granted in 1983. Now a little bit weirdness about this because of, I mean, this is actually no longer the case, but back then the way that prior art worked in the US system versus the international system was different. And because the algorithm had been previously published in Scientific American, yeah, the, that patent was actually only valid in the US. Oh, really? Yeah. And the interesting thing about that, kind of the most interesting thing, this is, the, this is maybe the biggest mind-blow thing that I found out during the research of this episode, is that there was an English mathematician named Clifford Cox um, who designed a similar cryptosystem to RSA for GCHQ, the the um that we previously talked about the the UK NSA type arm in yeah, 1973. Yeah. Oh really? Oh, yeah, and that would have been prior art that would have made the patent just not grantable at all.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: But we didn't know about that. Nobody did outside of the basically the NSA and the GCHQ until right. 1997 when the work was declassified. <laughs> That's and the, the patent expired in 2017 so 17 years. So the Rinvest, Shamar, and Adelman are the RSA in RSA. RSA mm-hmm. security, yeah. that company was based around the algorithm by you know started by these three guys. Like there is other uh, asymmetric encryption algorithms. Um, there's one called DSA, which is the digital signature algorithm, which I believe, and I didn't check this, but I, and I probably should have, but I believe that they figure out a way of implementing it for both digital signatures and digital encryption. But it originally was only intended for for, for signatures. I'm like, not super sure about that, but I'm pretty sure I, I read that. And there's elliptical curve versions of of of, of some of the stuff at this point. Right.
0: Um.
1: But this is where it all started. Now, as you know from our important and seminal uh uh, episode a tale of two protocols the third episode we released (laughs) ssl was released in 1994 by netscape and it would have been basically impossible without both the diffie hellman type key exchange and asymmetric cryptography right yeah el gamal the father of ssl actually didn't created an improvement to the diffie hellman algorithm that is known as diffie hellman Elgamal, gamal which uh, Whitfield-Diffie, I remember saying one time when, when uh, I was at a DEF CON uh, panel that he was there on, he, he said there have been other implementations of key exchange, but he actually thinks the best one is Diffie-Hellman-enhanced by L gamal
2: mm, Okay.
1: But there was a problem in this system is that we have strong digital cryptography available, but the powers that be weren't comfortable with that. yeah. We already talked about, like in the first episode, how the NSA tried to prevent the, the publication of both the codebreakers and the patenting of the original DES system.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In
1: 1991, a law was introduced, the Comprehensive Counterterrorism Act of 1991, and the introducing senator said, uh, in recent discussions with terrorism experts from the Federal Bureau of Investigations and other law enforcement agencies, I've discovered that there are several gaps exist in our anti-terrorism laws. So he was actually the sponsor of this act. Do you know which senator this was?
0: Uh, is it going to be Lieberman?
1: Nope, it's going to be a guy named Joseph Biden.
0: Oh, damn, okay. <laughs> that name sounds really familiar.
1: Yeah. Turns out he went on to hold a different office eventually. <laughs> I find it interesting that we now have Joe Biden as president. There's been a lot of other thoughts since then, but the Earn IT Act is kind of on the floor right now. And it's got a lot of similar ideas in it. No, really. And yeah, and I one of the conclusions that I've come to from a lot of this reading, and I was actually going to try and say this to the end, but is how important cryptography has been towards the growth of a digital economy and a digital world. How we had a, this big move right around that, the, the whole set of scares around the earlier versions of TLS where yeah. everything moved to HTTPS. Like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody cares about good, strong digital cryptography. It's necessary for commerce. Yeah. All of the government systems get a major dividend from the expense of implementing cryptography because it's a commodity thing. Right, yeah. In fact, AES and its implementation were part of the consideration of how our major processors were designed. And that's why AES is actually faster than the old algorithms to implement. Like you don't need a special processor for it. It's built into the main processor and it's faster because of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly so cryptography was considered under the u.s international trade and arms restrictions itar strong cryptography is considered was considered a munition okay so if you wanted to export it it had to have an export license and you couldn't give it to at all to certain sanctioned endpoint like they couldn't even get a license for it yeah yeah this was also like the very beginning of the whole like razors and blades business model of Netscape where they gave the browser away for free but they sold the web server. So the browser could be downloaded and everybody used Internet Explorer as kind of Microsoft's distributed very convenient utility for downloading Netscape.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) But at that point in time, you actually had to go to a web page asserting that you were a US person to download the full strength 128-bit encryption version. Mm -hmm. The export version had 40-bit encryption. You remember Mm. that we're pretty close to around the point when DES was dead and DES was 56 bits.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So this also caused a limited use of Phil Zimmerman's uh, PGP, pretty good privacy email security system, Mm -hmm. which is interesting in and of itself. And frankly, there's a good chunk of stuff about the Phil Zimmerman system and a few other things that happened in this time period. I'm just trying not to go over literally everything that happened here. In fact, a really good book for all of this is the book that I used for a lot of my research, which is the same book from before the crypto wars by Craig Jarvis. Uh, great work by Craig. There's been stuff like uh, cryptome, the cryptography, fandom phantom wiki is actually quite good. And there's surprisingly good stuff on Wikipedia, but anyway, uh, Anyway, sorry, I probably didn't need to do the whole credits thing all over there, but I felt guilty um, uh, because there's just a, a ton of really good information about this. Um, yeah. But the most important thing was that it was really causing a bind for both the development of commercial products and the expansion of open source software that ITAR, the ITAR restrictions were in place. Right, that makes sense. In fact one of the protest things that went on by the hacker community is uh t-shirts were produced with the source code for the RSA algorithm in perl and a barcode in the in one of the standard barcode <laughs> uh, um standards for the source code so if you scanned it with basically a barcode scanner you'd get the the perl source code of the implementation of the RSA algorithm
2: mm, and it nice. would
1: say this shirt is a weapon or this shirt uh Uh, is considered a munition and is not for for export or viewable by non U.S. persons. (laughs) Like various versions of the the shirt. Some of them said on the back, like bill of rights void free speech. And um, and the thing is, there was this really weird free speech artifact during testimony about this. Somebody asked, hey, this software is considered a munition. We can't export it, right? Well, what about the relative of the newly published in 1995 book applied cryptography? Does that fall under the same restriction? And it doesn't because it had been established that you basically couldn't censor any books.
0: Right, right.
1: So we had a book detailing all of these algorithms and talking a great deal about them and uh, crypto analysis but software that implements it was verboten would violate itar and could land you in some pretty hot water um Mm -hmm. i actually didn't write down the, the the penalties but if you work for a government contractor or anything related that might be considered ammunition you will have to go through a training about itar where they tell you like these are the prison sentences and the penalties uh i know that there have been tens of millions of dollars in fines in the last several years for various violations of ITAR.
0: Yeah, you can be fined up to $1 million per violation or 10 years of imprisonment or both.
1: So like, they're not joking around. This is worse than copyright infringement. So the EFF was pretty new at the time. Started, I think we mentioned in a previous episode, by one of the, the founders of Lotus mm-hmm. and some cypherpunks. And between them and the software industry, they lobbied pretty hard for software not being considered a munition. But in the end, what did it was a bunch of legal challenges. There were civil libertarians and privacy advocates, but the guy who gets a lot of the credit for this is a professor Peter Younger uh, from Case Western University. Mm, okay. And he was teaching some classes on cryptography, and and he had to send all his non-US. students. From the room when he would when he would teach it, and he tried to find out what the standard was, what he could show and what he couldn't, and he got a bunch of runaround about it. Mm -hmm. So he was a big part of all of these legal challenges that eventually led to the relaxation of the export standards in 1996 by Bill Clinton, where the same case that I that I was making earlier was made that the value of strong encryption. For normal activity, far outweighed the detriment of bad actors using cryptography to avoid um, observation by law enforcement.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: So Clinton signed off on this in 96, and the US Department of Commerce finally published the official rules and regulations, relaxing all of this stuff for sure in 2000. So I said the NSA strikes back as kind of a joke because Crypto War, Star Wars, but um, there hasn't been a lot of NSA in this in this episode, but we end on the NSA.
2: Mm, okay.
1: So have you ever heard of the clipper chip?
0: The clipper chip? Mm, no.
1: It was a thing that that was part of the study materials in my CISSP, but you got your CISSP after I did.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that coming up at all.
1: So the clipper chip used the skipjack algorithm developed mm-hmm. by the NSA. And what the clipper chip was supposed to, be in every telecommunications endpoint that would encrypt the communication and create a create a key escrow system so that it could be decrypted by law enforcement when law enforcement wanted to. Mm, okay. Now, the simplest case that you might consider for something like this would be just, oh, we're going to put a key on everything. Well, that's really bad, really fast because as soon as you have the key, you can read all communications.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So you have to create a mechanism. What's called a key escrow system, to individually encrypt things at least on a per-device basis. That way, you're not. um If you break it once, you're not broken everywhere. Yeah. So they had an algorithm that was created by the NSA. It was actually based on a. It was a Feistel algorithm. So this is based on on something in the same family as DES. Feistel. The Feistel algorithms are are a Feistel network. Is is uh, Horst Feistel uh, from last episode, the guy who basically created DES, um, yeah, yeah. The, the original demon or Lucifer uh, um, <laughs> algorithm. So the Skipjack algorithm used an 80-bit key in a Feistel network, a related algorithm to DES. And the NSA primarily developed it in 1987. They'd done some prior work in the 80s, but 87 is when they, like, they set this algorithm in stone. Now, the thing is, and Bruce Scheider, the, the applied cryptography guy, uh, was, has been quoted as saying, the thing about DES was when it was published, it really supercharged the whole crypto analysis world because we finally had an algorithm to attack.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And this was similar to DES. So it got a lot of look pretty quickly as soon as we were able to see it. The algorithm was declassified in 98 and we'll talk about the attacks in a second but the chip the myk78 was designed by mycotronics and fabricated by vl uh, vlsi technology so it went for 16 dollars uh, unprogrammed 26 dollars programmed and one of the big barriers to it being adoption was just that it was so expensive nobody bought it <laughs> but it's a good thing that it wasn't because um uh, In 1994, Matt Blaze published a paper called Protocol Failure in the Escrowed Encryption Standard. And they point out a a serious vulnerability in the law enforcement access field, which was the leaf field, which was the key escrow mechanism uh, field for the Clipper chip. Okay. That leaf field was 128 bits, which was Mm. 16 bit hash value and 112 bits of the ciphertext of the escrowed key.
2: Right, right.
1: So what he figured out was that 16 bits as a hash was too short that he could brute force a similar piece of text that would pass the hash but wouldn't contain the key.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: So if you did that, you would have something that looked like it had been encrypted and had a valid key escrow key right up until you tried to read it.
0: Oh, okay.
1: When you tried to read it, the key wouldn't come out and you yeah. couldn't decrypt it. But a funny thing about Matt Blaze, in 1993, he registered crypto.com <laughs> and ended up selling it in 2010 to a crypto Visa card company called Monaco.
0: Oh, damn. How much do they sell from?
1: They didn't disclose it. It is theorized to be between 5 and $10 million. Mm, okay, nice. Mm. So shortly after the publication, of the uh, algorithm, Adi Shamir of RSA fame and uh, a collaborator named Eli Binham, who was is another Israeli cryptographer, discovered a partial attack on, on Skipjack. Skipjack used a 32 round use of the FISL network. They found an attack that got them through 16 of those 32. There were some subsequent attacks that thought they had gotten it, but at this point, the last few papers basically say that nobody's successfully attacked the full algorithm, all 32 rounds. Yeah. But it hasn't been a huge focus of crypto analysis either, so... Mm, Yeah. I don't know what we can necessarily say about whether or not it would have stood the test of time. Right, yeah. But I worry about the escrow key system because of some of the stuff we're going to talk about in episode 3, which is the hacker strike back. (laughs) So there was a lot of pushback by privacy advocates. Um, in the background of all of the stuff in both the last episode and this episode, and stuff that we didn't even cover in the same time period, was a set of folks called the Cypherpunks. I don't want to get too far in them. They may deserve an episode on their on their own, but they've been very active. And they were, in fact, they were, they were part of the push to get DES deprecated um, that led to the DES challenges. In addition to a bunch of other stuff, but there's some problematic stuff with those guys too. It was it like there's a lot to cover there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But between them and the industry basically not wanting to adopt it because of the expense, it didn't get adopted. But the thing that 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 I find interesting is in the exact same time period, the CIA was running crypto AG and already had a backdoor into a lot of communications.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah
1: which is kind of my position on a lot of this stuff. It's kind of fair cop for professional government organizations to try and break the uh, communication stuff. But it is much less cool to me to create a potential vulnerability in real encryption as a matter of course for law enforcement. I think that that is overall a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the hacker strike back is about how the DVD system got broken, which was also a key escrow type mechanism. Well, it's a little different than a key escrow mechanism, but it was a di- where the key information was distributed all over the place. And I think it's a really good example of what happens when you try and create a system where you have much less tight control of the key information, which is which you kind of have to whenever you create a very large scale um, encryption system. Yeah key security becomes a big problem and the examples that we have where people have done it have all had implementation problems so it's a thing that makes me afraid that just doing it creates a weakness in the entire crypto system. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that was the NSA strikes back, Crypto Wars 2 when the government, or the US government tried to limit the use of strong cryptography.
0: (laughs) Recording can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified
2: of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.